Putin's forces are now targeting Western Ukraine in a way rarely seen in this invasion. The lead starts right now. It had been a relatively safe area of Ukraine, but now missile strikes have killed at least seven in Ukraine's western city of Lviv. CNN is on the ground as new video may show one of Russia's weapons in action. Plus, more of Jake's exclusive interview with Ukrainian President Zelensky. He is pushing back on concerns his troops would need months of training to use advanced weapon systems. He says send them quickly and they'll be prepared. Also ahead, a sharp rebuke of the Biden administration's travel mask mandate. A federal judge is ruling this afternoon that could end the days of masks required on planes, trains, and public transportation. Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown. Jake Tapper is off today. We begin this hour in Mariupol, Ukraine, described as, quote, hell on earth by one Ukrainian Marine commander. In an open letter to Pope Francis begging for intervention, adding, quote, The time has come when praying is not enough. Ukrainian forces in the besieged city rejecting a deadline to surrender to the Russians. A local official says Russian forces plan to seal the city off from entry or exit. Russian troops also battering the city of Kremina in Luhansk, part of the Donbass. A Ukrainian official says the town has now been lost amid heavy fighting there. Not even Western Ukraine was spared today. This airborne Russian missile was one of at least four to hit the western city of Lviv. As CNN's Matt Rivers reports, those strikes killed at least seven people and wounded 11, including a child. Lviv has largely been spared the horrors of this war, which made the black smoke in Monday's skies so unusual here. We chased one such plume until we arrived at its source, flames shooting out of two buildings as firefighters rained water down from above. Well, Ukrainian officials say at least four missile strikes across Lviv on Monday morning, uh, three of which hit military infrastructure sites, another hitting just across these railroad tracks behind me. Let me show you the impact crater from where Ukrainian officials say that Russian missile struck. Military and first responders on the scene quickly thereafter, the explosion destroying an auto repair shop and a dozen or so cars lined up outside. The explosion shockwaves blew out windows more than 500 feet away. Maria Holovchak showed us her building's damage. I got very scared, she says, and I was scared that the whole building was going to fall down. I don't know whether I should stay here in this building or if I should move to Poland and flee for my life. Overall, the four strikes across the city killed at least seven people and injured about a dozen, including a child. Here, scenes from a hospital treating victims of the strike who survived. Other victims in body bags outside the repair shop where they'd worked. The owner says they were just getting ready to open up the business for the day when the missile struck. Four of his employees, he says, were killed and several others were sent to the hospital. And at what appears to be such an obvious non-military target, it begs the question, was this a mistake by the Russian military or was this place targeted on purpose? The owner told us the only vague connection his shop had to the military was volunteering time to make sure cars being sent to soldiers at the front were in good shape. For him, this is just another example of Russian military brutality. He says they destroy our infrastructure, they kill people, they want to kill and destroy the Ukrainian nation. Several of those who died have families with young children. 
So instead of leaving work to go home and see them, their bodies were taken to the morgue. More victims in a needless war. And Pamela, this is the first time in the Lviv region that citizens, ordinary people, have been killed by a Russian missile strike. And it signifies something, according to the European Union's foreign policy chief, who said in a statement today, in part, that because Lviv and other western cities in Ukraine have been targeted by missiles, it, quote, shows that no part of the country is spared from the Kremlin's senseless onslaught. Pamela. Matt Rivers and Lviv, thank you. So sad about all these kids now without their family members due to that strike in Lviv. A Ukrainian Defense Ministry spokesperson warns Russian troops have completed regrouping for their anticipated offensive operation in eastern Ukraine. CNN Chief International Correspondent Clarissa Ward joins us live from Dnipro. So, Clarissa, how intense has the fighting been in and around the Donbass? Pamela, there's no question there has been a marked uptick in the intensity of the pummeling of these frontline towns in the Donbass region. Uh, that's in the Luhansk and Donetsk areas. These are regions that have been at war with Russian-backed separatists for eight years, but they are also uh, not experienced to deal with this level of intensity. Now, we are hearing reports from some regional Ukrainian military authorities that they believe, in a sense, that this Russian offensive has already begun, that essentially they are trying to soften the ground and are now trying to push across the front lines as they launch this three-pronged attack, coming down from the north, uh, from the city of Izium, where there has been heavy fighting, pushing up from the south, and also trying to push in from the east. I should add that Ukrainian forces have been fighting back. They have been launching counteroffenses. They claim that they took back several villages near Izium. But in the past few days, we have traveled to a couple of towns in these areas. A lot of people are desperate to flee and simply don't know how to do that in terms of having the money, the means, the infrastructure to get out, people to look after their homes. Other people are simply refusing to leave because they have seen the scenes that have played out in areas that were held by Russian forces north of Kiev, and they don't want to risk their homes being looted, their possessions being stolen, uh, and their lives potentially being destroyed. So it's a very difficult situation for Ukrainian authorities who are telling people to leave, but a lot of people still not heeding the call despite the uptick in the intensity of fighting, Pamela. And a senior Ukrainian official says the town of Kremina in Luhansk has been lost. Tell us what happened there today. So essentially, this was part of uh, an, a Russian effort to push in, to essentially move that front line and start to move in towards these uh, Donbass areas that are really the focus of this offensive in the east. We are hearing that there was heavy, heavy fighting in Crimea, street to street. We have also heard reports that civilians, again, as I just mentioned before, had not yet evacuated from that town in many cases because uh, they were not ready to, because they weren't sure that the offensive was actually imminent. Some of them were trying to flee in a civilian vehicle that was allegedly marked that it had civilians in it. They came under fire and there were some casualties. We don't have exact numbers yet. So the sense is that Ukrainian forces all along this front line now are fighting very hard 
to try to push back Russian forces. And the thing you hear again and again from all of those frontline defenders is that they are desperately in need of heavy weapons, ammunition, and as much support as they can possibly get, because Ukrainian forces are certainly stretched thin now with, as I mentioned, Russia trying to push in from three different sides, Pamela. They are stretched thin, but they are keeping up the fight. Clarissa Ward reporting live from Dnipro. Thank you, and stay safe, Clarissa. We're seeing new video from inside the besieged city of Mariupol, shot by AFP, showing civilians wandering the ruins of their hometown. A senior U.S. defense official says the city is still contested at this hour. And in part of his exclusive interview with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, you haven't yet seen Jake Tapper asked about his troops' readiness for advanced weapon systems and about his push for countries to cut off Russian oil. But we begin with Zelensky's dire warning about the threat his troops face in Mariupol. We wanted to take away the wounded. We talked about it being a humanitarian mission. Give us the wounded back. We even made plans for Turkey to be a mediator and get the wounded, civilians and the military. We don't let them out because we understand Russia just wants to shoot them dead. They say they are ready to let all the military go if they surrender. But they are not going to surrender. They don't want to do so. And this is why it is a complicated and tragic situation, because the military doesn't want to surrender. And without it, Russians are not ready to let them go. And this sounds like the beginning of our war, what happened in Isla Vask. When you can make an agreement with Russians to let them go, unarmed, but after what they do is shoot them dead. That is why no one trusts Russia now. One of the things I hear from Western leaders is that your government asks for weapons that your military doesn't know how to use. Is it better to have the highest, top-of-the-line, best equipment that your troops need to be trained, and that could take weeks, if not months? Or is it better to have equipment that you know how to use that might not be as advanced? I believe that this issue is definitely not up to us. I have heard many times from certain states that did not want to give us weapons quickly because our soldiers are not ready, from a technical standpoint, to use them. But instructors of such equipment, our instructors, will get our troops ready to fight in them. If it's a plane, for example, pilots can be ready in two weeks. Whether it's kamikaze drones, artillery, howitzers or MLRS complexes, we have very smart people for this. We've had training with NATO countries. And I've heard these tall tales that we would need months to train our troops to use new tanks. OK, give us a Soviet-era tank. And then the country says, well, there is a small problem. The decision is made, but then must go through Parliament. But there are people that are offering solutions, but it seems they are just self-serving. So it's precisely not up to us. We are prepared to use any type of equipment, but it needs to be delivered very quickly, and we have the ability to learn how to use new equipment. But it needs to come fast. One of the things you've been calling for is for the world to stop using Russian fuel, because that is what's paying for Putin's war. 
about a third of Russian fuel comes through pipelines in Ukraine. Have you thought about stopping the pipeline? About a third of the gas comes through Ukraine. Uh, yes, we understand this problem. We understand how much money Russia makes on energy carriers. And yes, first of all, we are calling for an oil embargo, because they make one billion a day on oil. And we are calling for a gas embargo afterwards. And we are fighting together and looking into these options. This is transit. We have a transit agreement. That is why it is necessary to have an agreement between Europe and Russia so they have an embargo on gas supply, and then there will be no transit. We can't just stop the transit if they have, you know, deals with, with Europe, if Europe uh, doesn't want to stop these, you know, these uh, uh, contracts of gas. That's why we can't stop, just, just stop the transit, because I spoke about it with some of European leaders, and I said to them that, you, you, you know, you, you don't afraid that they should... The, if, if you want to know, if, to, be, to be very honest, uh, Russia... Russia is shelling gas pipelines on purpose and wants to show that Ukraine can't maintain a constant supply of gas. And our military are dying right next to that transit in nearby areas. This is how it's happening. To the east of our country, they install their groupings and are shelling civilian neighbourhoods from these areas. And we can't shoot back, because they are located precisely at the spots where the gas pipeline is. So if we start shooting back, we can hit the gas pipeline. And this is what Russia is aiming at. They are trying to act this way in order to show that Ukraine is not able to safely supply gas. They are doing it, and they have been doing it for a while now, because they want an opportunity to reopen Nord Stream 2. And we are constantly observing it. I've talked about it to our European partners. I don't want to say what leaders I talk to. I told them, please put embargo on gas, please. We are ready to lose money. Money is not the most important thing for us. People are most important. Jake Tapper reporting there. Our thanks to him for that interview. He'll be back anchoring the show tomorrow. Well, Russia's invasion has left a ghost town in some parts of Ukraine. What city leaders tell loyalists who stay behind? Plus, a U.S. assessment picks up a buildup of Russian forces in southern Ukraine. What could this strategy mean for Putin's overall mission? I'll ask the Pentagon spokesman ahead. Staying in our world lead, Russian forces are intensifying their bombardment of eastern Ukraine. Cruise missile strikes overnight in Kramatorsk, damaging at least eight civilian buildings. And the mayor is warning the Russian offensive there could begin at any moment. But as CNN's Ben Wiedemann reports, many residents have decided to stay despite the danger. The playgrounds are empty. There are no children here. The pigeons indifferent to the air raid siren. And so, it would seem, are the people. I close my ears when I'm walking around, says Nikolai, because it's all the time. As fighting flares to the east, north and south, the few residents left in Kramatorsk carry on. The train station, seen 10 days ago of a Russian missile strike that left almost 60 dead, is closed. Trains don't come here anymore. 
The buses, oddly enough, still run. A deep hole marks where overnight a Russian missile struck. There were no injuries this time. Nearby, signs of an earlier bombing. After almost two months of war, Konstantin is fatalistic. I'm not suicidal, he says, but as long as other people stay here, I'll stay here. Kramatorsk mayor Oleksandr Goncherenko is blunt about the perils his city faces. It's not safe. It's, it's dangerous in, the, in each part of the city. You know, the rock can be attacked in every place of the city. Alisa and her husband stroll through the city's main square. This is, uh, is very bad and uh, terrible, but uh, we uh, won't live in Ukraine. For now, they have most of their city to themselves. Under normal circumstances, on a mild spring evening here in the main square in Kramatorsk, there would be lots of people here. Now, it's just me and the pigeons. Curfew approaches and dogs abandoned by their owners roam the empty streets of an almost empty city. The head of the regional administration in the Luhansk region says... There is no safe place left in all of eastern Ukraine. That message, oft repeated by so many officials in this part, may never sink in until perhaps it's too late. Pamela? Ben Wiedemann in Kramatorsk, Ukraine. Thank you, Ben. And up next, inside Zelensky's inner circle, why one of his closest advisors says the Ukrainian president is made for this moment. If Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is the single most visible face of Ukrainian resistance to the Russian war, he is rarely alone. In fact, he relies on one man in particular for support. Back to Jay Tapper now from Ukraine. Pamela, around the world and of course here in Ukraine, President Volodymyr Zelensky has taken on an almost iconic mythical status. His face is on shirts and handbags and chocolates. He is a hero everywhere. To get some insight into the man, we talked to uh, one of his closest friends and top aides, Andrei Yermak, who has been by his side for years. After we sat down with President Zelensky, we sat down with Yermak, and here is our conversation. Before he became chief of staff to a celebrated wartime president, 50-year-old Andrei Yermak was a lawyer and filmmaker. His close friend, Volodymyr Zelensky, an entertainment executive, and well-known actor. Now, just two years into his cabinet position, Yermak and Zelensky are fighting a war on the world stage. And Yermak says, this is exactly where they are meant to be. How did you get here? I can say, first of all, I have my real profession as a lawyer. Yes, of course, some, some period of time I'm in the parallel. I work like a movie producers. Um, but if we're talking about uh, Vladimir Zelensky, I can say, first of all, it's a very simple understanding of him. I think just uh, this very tragic uh, situation and this terrible war in Ukraine show for all the world that he's a real leader. 
he is a leader and he is the person who is coming to this uh, politics career for one reason, to change our country. Maybe two years ago, I said in some interview that I'm sure that our president will be the leader as minimum of the our part of the Europe and maybe more. A lot of critics was here, a lot of politics, just Ukrainians said, what is it? It's like a joke. But now it's uh, all these people understand that it's true. Russian forces have put Zelensky's leadership to the test with near-constant shelling, including in and around Ukraine's capital, Kyiv. When the invasion began and the United States offered President Zelensky a way out of the country, he said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. Was there ever a moment where he thought of leaving just to save his own life or the life of his family? No. No, I, I, I didn't. I came uh, to the office six hours in the morning of 24th. The president already was in his cabinet. And all these 50 days, he's, he's in the office of the president. If he hadn't stayed, do you think this war would have gone differently? Do you think maybe the Ukrainian people found inspiration in fighting because he stayed too? Absolutely, 100%. It was so important. We here in the office of the presidents and other government bodies, we are working. It's our obligations. I think it's not a heroic. It's real heroes. It's the people who it's, it's our soldiers. It's our army. Of course, the Ukrainian army was never supposed to be in this position with Russia. A now repeatedly violated agreement in the 1990s was meant to keep the two nations at peace, at least in theory. Let's talk about the Budapest Memorandum. Ukraine agreed to give up its nuclear weapons in a deal with the United States and Russia uh, in which it was pledged that nobody would infringe on Ukraine's territorial sovereignty. Obviously, Russia has violated that. Do you think the United States has also violated that by not doing more to stand up for the Ukrainian sovereignty that the U.S. said it would stand up for? No, of course, violation of the Russia of our not just started in the 24th of February of this year, it started from the um, annexation of yeah. Crimea, and then the war in Donbass. I think that it's happened uh, because we was a very young country. We was a very young, uh, uh, independent country. We have not this experience. The experience, but not the NATO membership and not the protected airspace Zelensky has asked for. While the international community has given massive financial backing to Ukraine, including more than $14 billion from the U.S., Yermak says Ukraine needs a new system. All uh, systems of the security not work, and I can say not exist. Of course, uh, we do our best uh, to talk with our part, the United States, Great Britain, France, Germany, Italy, and uh, Turkey, with other countries uh, to create this new system. And of course, after this war, after these heroic uh, fightings of Ukrainian nations, uh, we have absolutely rights, not just to be a part of this new system, but it be in the center and be one of the leaders of this new system of the security. As a film producer, one of Andre Yermak's most famous movies was called The Fight Rules, Your Spirit is Your Weapon, now waging a real-life fight, a real-life war 
that title could not be more appropriate. Jake Tapper in Ukraine, back to you. So true on that. Jake Tapper, thanks so much. What the White House just said about the possibilities of President Biden traveling to Ukraine during this Russian invasion up next. In our politics lead, the United States just sent four planes full of military aid for Ukraine as part of the latest $800 million security assistance package. According to a senior defense official, and another load is now on its way right now. But President Zelensky telling Jake that the latest package still falls short and, quote, enough isn't possible. Chief White House correspondent Caitlin Collins joins us live. So, Caitlin, President Zelensky also said he wanted President Biden to visit Ukraine. Is there any change in the White House position on that? Yeah, and he said ultimately he believes President Biden will visit Ukraine, but whether or not that's going to happen anytime soon, Pamela, seems very unlikely based on what we just heard from the White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who said it still remains in place that there are no plans for President Biden to visit Ukraine. And she said right now their focus is elsewhere. There's no plans for the president to go, so let me just reiterate that. But uh, we would not uh, outline from here or anywhere from the government who, if, and when for security reasons. So we wouldn't have any details to preview regardless. So that comment there at the end, not about President Biden, but that's something that we've heard. There are discussions about behind the scenes here at the White House. Maybe they would send Defense Secretary Austin or Secretary of State Blinken. We should know both of them are in Washington today right now having meetings. And so whether or not they ultimately are sent there, she's basically saying because of security reasons, they likely won't disclose it before they would arrive. But right now, despite this hope by President Zelensky that President Biden will visit, the White House says there's still no plans for that. And really, Pam, what is a big thing behind that is the logistics of actually getting the president there, though there have been a lot of questions for the White House about this ever since British Prime Minister Boris Johnson himself also visited Ukraine. Yeah, certainly. And what did Press Secretary Jinsaki say when you asked about Zelensky's request to make Russia a state sponsor of terrorism? Yeah, this is a direct request that we are told Zelensky made to President Biden during a recent phone call that they had asking him to basically make Russia this pariah, putting them on a list that very few other nations are on, just really a handful, and make them a state sponsor of terrorism. And so the White House uh, doesn't seem to be actively considering that right now. This is something that they said would come from the State Department. It would take basically a methodical process to look at that, to make that determination that they belong on that list with places like Cuba and Iran. And so it doesn't seem that they have made that decision yet. They didn't have anything to announce. But Jen Psaki also noted that making them a state sponsor of terrorism, what that would prompt sanctions and blocking them from certain exports are measures that the White House has already put in place to Russia as a response to their invasion of Ukraine. And Russia has warned that the U.S. uh, of consequences if America keeps arming Ukraine. That's notable given the uh, military aid that is on its way over there. What are those consequences? Well, the White House seems to think this is an empty threat from Russia. They warned of these unpredictable consequences without exactly saying what that was in this memo that Russia sent to the United States late last week. Of course, clearly the White House seems undeterred by this warning because they continued with these shipments. The day after they actually got that warning from Russia last Tuesday was the day that President Biden announced this $800 million military package, the one that includes a lot heavier duty stuff than previous packages the United States has sent. And what we heard from the Pentagon today was that since that announcement, four flights of that military aid have already made their way into Ukraine, four four shipments, I should note, of that military aid. They believe a fifth is going to arrive in the next 24 hours or so. And the Pentagon also said today that they are preparing to train Ukrainian forces outside of Ukraine on some of the artillery systems that they've included in that 
latest package, basically training a small subset of forces so then they can go back into Ukraine, train the other Ukrainian armed forces. And so despite this warning from Russia, Pamela, these shipments are still continuing. All right, Caitlin Collins, live for us from the White House. Thanks, Caitlin. And coming up, I'm going to speak to the Pentagon spokesman about this possible new strategy the U.S. is assessing from Russia's actions in southern Ukraine and what it may take for Ukrainians to prevent a takeover. And we are back with our world lead. The Defense Department will start training Ukrainian defense forces on how to use American howitzers. 18 of the powerful pieces of towed artillery are in the latest $800 million U.S. assistance package. And Pentagon Press Secretary Admiral John Kirby says he expects the training won't take long. And he joins us now. Hi, Admiral. So let's talk about what's going on in Mariupol. Uh, Ukrainian forces and civilians have dug in at a still plant in four square miles around it in the besieged city. Russia says any further resistance means, quote, all of them will be eliminated What is the U.S. assessment on how long Ukrainians can keep hold of it? Very difficult to know with any certainty, Pamela. Uh, The Ukrainians continue to fight uh, for Mariupol. It's an important city for them economically, culturally, and they are still in the city. They're still fighting for it. Uh, But, of course, the Russians have uh, done a lot to devastate that city, to uh, to uh, to to rain down uh, airstrikes and artillery on Mariupol, and they too have forces uh, inside the city. So very difficult to know how much longer this fighting is going to go, but we've seen no sign out of the Ukrainians that they're not willing to continue to defend that city. But do you think it's inevitable that the city will fall to the Russians? No, I don't, actually. I mean, I, I know, you know, because they have uh, superiority uh, from the air, they have superiority in the ground, uh, but the Ukrainians have held on to Mariupol now for a long time, longer than a lot of people thought. And I think if we've learned nothing out of the last, uh, you know, 54, 55 days of warfare in Ukraine, it is that nothing is inevitable. Uh, the Ukrainians continue to fight for that city and We're doing the best we can to get them the kinds of security assistance, the weapons and systems that they need to do that. They have certainly showed the will to fight. If uh, Mariupol does fall, emphasis on if, and Russians have control of that region, how crippling will it be for Ukraine if Russia has complete control practically of that land bridge um, to Crimea? Well, you just answered part of your question right there. It would give them a land bridge to Crimea. That's one of the reasons why they, they want Mariupol so bad. The other thing that it would do for them... Uh, Pamela, is uh, give them an anchor on the southern part of that Donbass region, the, uh, the southern part of eastern Ukraine, uh, and allow them to put more pressure on the Ukrainian forces which are in the Donbass. And again, still trying to defend that part of their country from Russian advances. And we are seeing signs that the Russians are moving in more elements, moving in more troops, moving in more helicopters uh, to try to make a big offensive there in the Donbass. So having Mariupol would not only allow the Russians geographic, a, a southern geographic place to launch operations in the Donbass, but it would free up uh, battalion tactical groups, several battalion tactical groups that they now have dedicated to Mariupol, they could then move north uh, to reinforce their forces there. So uh, you can understand, at least just looking at the map, uh, why the Russians are fighting as well so hard for Mariupol. You mentioned the Donbass. In fact, moments ago, we just heard from President Zelensky that the fight for Donbass has begun. What can you tell us about this newest front in the war? Well, there is, there's been fighting going on there, as you know, for eight years. Certainly there's been fighting since the beginning of this invasion. 
the, the, the Russians and the Ukrainians. This is a part of the uh, country where terrain they're both familiar with. Uh, they, they, they've been fighting there for a long time. Again, we've seen the Russians reinforce their forces there. They've added some battalion tactical groups into the region. They've added, again, helicopter artillery support. Uh, and there have been offensives uh, near the Donetsk area where the Ukrainians, we believe, have actually taken back towns and villages from the Russians. So there is active fighting going on right now. We know the administration has said no to a no-fly zone. But would the administration consider doing something similar to that in the waters around Ukraine, like an embargo uh, around Ukraine? Well, look, I think uh, the, the president has been very clear, Pamela, there's, there's not going to be U.S. troops fighting in Ukraine. And, and that would include the, certainly the skies over Ukraine. Uh, and, and I see no indication that, uh, that there will be a need for the United States to get involved in the maritime environment uh, around Ukraine. Uh, what we are trying to do is bolster the Ukrainian coastal defense capabilities. And that's not just us. Other countries are helping them with coastal defense uh, cruise missiles and, and defensive uh, weapons. We have also, in this latest package that the president just authorized last week, have included some unmanned surface vehicles uh, that can help them with coastal defense capabilities. So, I mean, we're trying to do the best we can to help them in the maritime environment, in the Sea of Azov, and in the Black Sea, because, again, we know that the Russians are using the maritime environment to help reinforce their own invasion. But what I hear from you is that there will, at this point, be no U.S. involvement in the waters there. Uh, I I know of no indication that we would be doing that. A European Union official says the most recent Russian attacks on Lviv means nowhere is safe, that aggression in the West is always inching towards the doorstep of NATO countries. What do you make of the attack on Lviv and how it raises the stakes for something like that happening? Uh, We've said from almost the very beginning uh, that uh, places like Kiev and Lviv uh, are are going to be under threat by the Russians, by the by the airstrike capability and the missile strike capability that they still have available to them. Now, it's difficult to know exactly what they were trying to achieve in Lviv and Kiev with these strikes over the course of the weekend. Uh, We largely assess that they were going after military or military related targets. But the vast preponderance of their airstrikes and artillery bombardments are happening in the east predominantly on Mariupol, but also in that area of the Donbass where we know the Ukrainians uh, have, have many troops and many formations. Zelensky says, going back to what uh, he has been saying, he says he wants President Biden, as you well know, to go to Ukraine. Yeah, he just had an exclusive sit down with my colleague Jake Tapper. Yeah. There are no officially announced White House plans, but do you think it's a good idea for Secretary Austin to go? Well, I don't want to get ahead of travel that hasn't been decided or announced. Uh, I think you can understand we're going to be careful there. Uh, but as you saw over the weekend, Kiev did re- receive airstrikes. I mean, uh, Kiev is not out of the threat environment here with respect to Russian capabilities. And so, look, any any potential visit, and I'm not previewing one here today, but any one, we'd have to take force protection and security uh, as a premium concern and make sure uh, that we could only execute this in a safe way, not just for uh, whatever principle goes, whatever U.S. official goes, but for the Ukrainian people themselves. We wouldn't want to put them at greater risk. And as we saw again over the weekend, Kiev is not out of, of the complete threat picture. Right so now. is it fair to say that the, the strikes in, in Kiev more, more recently changed the calculation in sending a, a U.S. administration official? Well, no decision has been made. And, right, but did it no change the calculation? I think, look, we're always going to be looking at the security environment before we make any kind of travel decision. And that's just, that's just par for the course. All right. I want to ask you just very quickly, we heard this war could last months, not years. What is the ultimate goal for the U.S. realistically? Well, we want Ukraine to be whole and sovereign and free. We want uh, their territorial in- integrity to be respected by Russia. We want the Russian attack and invasion and the war to end. 
Uh, and that means we want Ukraine to win this fight. And we're doing everything we can here at the Department of Defense to make sure they have the capabilities uh, to do that. I mean, they have had enormous success so far, but there's still a lot of fighting ahead of them. And because now the Russians are going to be able to concentrate their vast amount of combat power on a smaller now geographic area, one where they will have shorter lines of supply in the east than they did uh, up in the north, uh, we can expect that the fighting is going to be ugly. It's going to be bloody. And as Chairman Milley said uh, in front of Congress a week or so ago, it could be prolonged. How long? We don't know. Uh, But it's going to be a serious fight. All right, Admiral John Kirby, thank you. My pleasure. So take it off or leave it on. A judge's ruling today creates a real gray area on masks required on airplanes and public transportation. In our national lead, it was a deadly holiday weekend of violence across the U.S., including at least 10 mass shootings since Friday. In Pittsburgh, an urgent manhunt is underway for the suspects behind a house party shooting that left two 17-year-olds dead and at least eight others wounded by gunfire. Authorities describe a chaotic scene as hundreds of people ran for their lives as more than 90 shots were fired inside the house. Dozens are injured after a pair of mass shootings in South Carolina, including one at a Columbia mall where at least nine suffered gunshot wounds. Police say the suspect in that shooting is now in custody. So far this year, 144 mass shootings have been reported, according to the Gun Violence Archive. And turning now to our health lead, a federal judge has struck down the national mask mandate for airplanes and other public transportation. The Trump-appointed judge in Florida says the CDC overstepped its authority in implementing the rule. The decision comes as airlines are experiencing a surge in spring travel. But for those of you headed out on a trip, don't put your masks away just yet. The Justice Department can file an appeal and request an emergency order to keep the mandate in place. The CDC recently recommended extending the masking rule until May 3rd. You can follow me on Twitter at Pamela Brown CNN or tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. <laughs> 